Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and this week we got a great crash course in barrels and aging, courtesy of our friend Alice Blaine Allard of Free State Cooperage. But first, a few announcements. Number one, if you're interested in cocktails and the spirits industry, I'd encourage you to take a listen to the Bartender Journey podcast, hosted by Brian Vincent Weber, who is a New York-based bartender. Brian is a great guy, and he recently interviewed me about modern bar cart, home bartending, and the brand new Embitterment Heritage Collection. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes page, and just like us, you can download the Bartender Journey podcast wherever you go to get your audio fix. Number two, we're putting together a couple really great interactive cocktail learning experiences in the D.C. area over the next couple months. Next Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, I'll be teaming up with McClintock Distilling as part of Frederick Community College's Handcrafted Cocktails class. We've got a link to that Facebook event and Eventbrite page in the show notes, and it'll take place at McClintock Distilling, where we'll get to taste some spirits and learn some great home bartending techniques that will make you a lot of fun at your next party. Next class will be sometime the next month or two where we team up with our friends at Generalist and District Space right here in Washington, D.C. to take you on a trip through cocktail history using a few of our products as guides with, of course, lots of cocktail samples along the way. The best way to find out about that event is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook so that you can be the first to hear when the details drop. And now, it's time to make yourself a drink. Today's featured cocktail is a bit of Irish whiskey-inspired fun prompted by the upcoming St. Patrick's Day festivities. And one problem I've personally had is that Irish whiskey is a bit too mellow for me. It's too smooth, too unassuming, and... For me, it kind of fades into the background without really making me think. So what I did is I set out to find a cocktail featuring Irish whiskey that I could really get behind for today's episode, and that's when I discovered the Tipperary Cocktail. To make this drink, you need two ounces of Irish whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of sweet vermouth, one half ounce of green chartreuse. It's a stirred drink, so you combine these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, You stir until chilled and properly diluted, and then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass. The garnish is a lemon here, lemon twist to be precise, and it's really important because if you notice, there's no acid in this drink. So if you leave out that lemon twist, there's going to be something really absent in the flavor profile, so please don't leave it out. Hopefully this gives you a nice alternative to the gallons of Guinness and Irish car bombs. Everyone else will be downing this St. Paddy's Day as things get sloppy. And if the Tipperary cocktail sounds good to you, maybe also consider drinks like the Vucare and the Diamondback, both of which use similar formulations with whiskey, vermouth, and green chartreuse combined in different ways. But we're here today to talk about barrels, which are one of the most important parts of the distilling, aging, and blending process. No barrels, no brown spirits. Let that sink in for a minute. Our guest is Alice Blaine Allard from Free State Cooperage, which is a company that handcrafts locally sourced barrels right here in the Mid-Atlantic, working with distillers who care deeply about the quality of the barrels they use to age their products. Some of the topics we discuss include the life cycle of a barrel from tree to stave, to whiskey barrel, and beyond. The physics of aged spirits and how barrel size, temperature, humidity, and char level all affect the process deeply. Meditations on the terroir of aged spirits and how local wood has local flavor. Some thoughts, of course, on barrel-aged cocktails. The not-so-subtle irony of George Washington's role in putting down the Whiskey Rebellion and much, much more. Alice and Free State Cooperage are putting the finishing touches on their facility and will be offering tours and tastings, hopefully, 
sometime in the near future. So definitely hit them up at freestatecooperage.com or follow them on Facebook to stay abreast of those updates. But for now, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Alice Blaine Allard. Alice, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as we like to do here, can you just take a moment, introduce yourself and talk about Free State Cooperage? With pleasure. My name, of course, is Alice Blaine Allard, and I am the proprietor of Free State Cooperage located in the beautiful Deep Creek Lake area of Western Maryland. At Free State Cooperage, we custom craft white oak barrels for the craft spirits, breweries, and wine industries in the Mid-Atlantic region. We play with fire, uh, which is the fun part of the job. And uh, we're helping to bring back the proud heritage in the region for the craft spirits industry in particular, but also supporting the, the craft beer industry who are very interested in playing with white oak barrels, as well as the wine industry that are interested in using American oak barrels. Yeah. Cooperages are obviously a very old kind of profession. So we have a lot of history there, but, you know, as you mentioned with the craft beer scene, getting into it a little bit more and uh, just the booming craft distilling, it seems like it's a really interesting industry to be in these days. It is booming and particularly for craft spirits. It is a hot market right now uh, where every single state in the United States has a distillery. Uh, in the region, it's exploding uh, with Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland growing significantly with craft distilleries. And so with that comes a need for barrels. Uh, we here in the United States age our spirits, our whiskey in particular, in new white oak barrels. And so it's a perfect time to bring back this heritage trade to the region. Nice. So taking us all the way from the basics uh, to the more advanced stuff. What is a cooperage? What does it entail? Who works there? What are some of the processes that happen on a given day? Well, coopering is the traditional craft of barrel making, uh, and it dates back centuries. And a cooperage is essentially where the barrels are made. So at Free State Cooperage, our barrel technicians are known as free coopers. And Really interesting side note on how we came to be called Free State Cooperage. So we are located in Maryland, uh, and Maryland as a state is known as the Free State for two reasons. How it relates to us is at Prohibition, the state of Maryland decided that they were not necessarily going to enforce Prohibition, that the feds had to do it themselves. And there was an op-ed written in the Baltimore Sun at the time that said the free state rises again uh, in defiance. And so that is our motto, that we liberate artisans one barrel at a time, that we believe in the art and craft of barrel making as it supports the craft spirits industry in particular. And so our coopers, our free coopers are trained in the traditional style of coopering, um, handcrafted. We're going to be custom crafting our barrels as well. So we will be using some woodworking machinery uh, to help us meet production goals, but we are staying true to the heritage that comes with coopering. Okay. So it seems like there's probably a spectrum of, I guess, methods and tools and techniques to be you know, had if you're a, a cooperage. So I, I'm guessing that probably on one far end of that spectrum would be like large sawmill operations where they're turning and burning these barrels for mega distilleries out in the, you know, uh, bourbon belt and Midwest. And then kind of at the other end would be somebody who's hyper artisanal. Um, what are some of the differences between those barrels that are cranked out in the high capacity places versus those that are hyper artisanal and kind of what are some of the costs and benefits of those different approaches? Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good question. Uh, and, and there really are, as you said, the spectrum. So there's the traditional handcrafted barrels, which follow the true apprenticeship style of barrel making where you're using the traditional cooperine tools. Everything is done by hand. Um, and that's taking the wooden stave and joining it and planing it using the traditional cooperine tools. 
uh, all the way to the raising, to the hammering of the hoops and installing the head and the crozing. Everything is done with a hand tool, and it's a true handmade barrel. And that is what traditional coopering is all about. That's also labor intensive. And so that truly is the artisanal approach. Um, And it's where the cooper is very intimate with the barrel, very intimate with the wood, understands every aspect that has gone into it. Uh, To the other spectrum, as you were saying, when you are producing barrels for um, large production, um, you know, I, I just heard the other day, and I don't know how accurate this is right now, but that, you know, one of the largest whiskey producers in Tennessee has 1.7 million barrels mm-hmm. um, aging right now. That's a lot of barrels. That's and like a forest. It's- that, that's, <laughs> it's, yes, indeed. And to make that quantity, uh, you have to utilize other mechanisms. And so the other extreme you said is it's utilizing um, computerized equipment uh, to help make the barrels. And there's a role for that. And what that helps to bring is um, certainly being able to track uh, production consistency, uh, and through that mechanism, especially applying, um, some of the, the computer data analysis, uh, lot of the larger cooperages are able to capture research information data that helps, um, better inform the industry as well. Then you've got us in the middle, um, what I call the custom crafted, where we're trying to blend, uh, so that, uh, and this is part of our mission uh, at Free State Cooperage, where we want to maintain that artisanal approach and honoring the tradition of the handcrafted. So we maintain hands-on in every step of the process. We, we know our wood. We know what, where it's going in the different stages um, to the firing all the way at the end. We work very closely with our distillers, our brewers, our winemakers um, on what they're looking for so that we're truly custom crafting each barrel. But to meet our production goals and to supply the need here in the region, it's utilizing the woodworking equipment, not computerized again, this is still hands-on so that we're able to produce more than one barrel a day. Cool. Yeah, it seems like an approach where you just have a craftsperson and a set of hand tools is just not sustainable for the type of demand that we have going. And it it seems like even though you are using these kind of more mechanized uh, tools that you're still able to, you know, run a human hand along the stave and and maintain some of that intimacy that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So... Cooperage, you get wood. Can you talk about the type of wood that you use, maybe where you source it from? I don't know if there's any secret sauce in here. Oh, it's always secret sauce. It's <laughs> the magic happens in the wood and in the fire. Uh, so we at Free State Cooperage, what's beautiful about where we're located is we're in the heart of the woodlands. Out in Western Maryland, we we're right in that tri-state area of, of West Virginia, Pennsylvania, not too far away from Virginia. Uh, And what sets us apart is we source our wood from our region. So we are able to offer single source barrels from Maryland, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia wood. Uh, It's all American white oak, Quercus alba. And not all white oak species are created equal. We have 300 species of white oak Mm -hmm. in America. And uh, it's, it's really only the Quercus alba in this region. Uh, that is, is used for tight cooperage, uh, meaning water, water tight. And it's, it's a fun wood to work with. It's also challenging. It's a very hard wood, which again is, is when you're working with your hands, you get to know it very, very well. What other types of wood might one see in the barrel making world? I think white oak is definitely the most common from what I, from what I see, the two types that I see generally are American or French and French again, tends to be used more in the winemaking world. Mm -hmm. And these types of barrels are almost never charred when, when used with wine, but are there any other species of wood that you can see used in, I guess, spirits aging? Well, when it comes to actually the tight cooperage, the barrel itself, uh, white oak is the only wood that will seal itself back up when pressure is applied. The tyloses 
uh, in the grain is what sort of glues it together when it's quarter sawn. So again, it's, it's how the wood is prepared in staves is important. It needs to be quarter sawn to cut across the cells. What does that mean, quarter sawn? So when you've got the radial of a white oak, the radial being the whole round, the whole round, the whole round stump. You like a, if everyone's ever seen a stump, then that's the the radial, I guess. Exactly, and you you see all the rays uh, and the growth rings that go around. Well, you can just traditionally saw it straight down and get your wood plank, but then you're just leaving the cells open and exposed. Uh, quarter sawn is literally. You make like a little you crosshair. Make, you make a little crosshair and you quarter it and you're, you're cutting across the cells in a certain way and you're getting the prime pieces out of the wood. What that produces is what's called a stave. And when that stave is put together in a barrel, pressure's applied, heat's applied, those cells come back together and seal essentially. We don't actually run our own sawmill or stave mill. There are a number of stave mills in the region that we work with, and we work with a number of private sawyers that will do this for us. But you've, you also are touching on the quality of the wood. Again, once it's identified as being kind of like stave quality, a. yeah, yeah. stave quality, because uh, not all white oak is created equal and um, not all is going to be destined for a barrel. Once it's determined it's, it's a good quality, it's cut into a stave, then we have to wait. We season it. It's not too dissimilar to, you know, spirits waiting in a barrel. We also season our wood uh, for a minimum of one year up to three years. And it's all air dried, all exposed to the elements. And what this does is it helps to break down some of the chemical compounds in the wood. It softens the tannins, that, that somewhat bitter astringent flavor you get from the wood. And American oak is, has that really strong tannic flavor, which is why when you were talking about difference between French oak and American oak, French oak has less of those tannins than, than American oak. And so we'll season our wood. And for a free state, all of our wood is air dried. It is not kiln drying. Begin because we want the mellow flavors to come out. Sure. And, and it seems like the, the kiln drying, obviously faster, but because you're using such intense heat, that's obviously going to cause some sort of corresponding chemical reaction within the wood. It does. And it also keeps a lot of those astringent flavors still in the wood. It actually doesn't extract that. Mm, interesting. So you get these wood staves in from your sawmills and then you season them for a year, let them kind of mellow out. Then it comes time to make the barrel. So how does a collection of staves turn into a barrel that then goes out the door to one of our distilling partners? Mm -hmm. Well, it'll come in as staves, as you mentioned, and our free coopers will take those staves. We will plane them. We will join them to specification, depending on the size of barrel that is needed for our clients. We offer for craft spirits, you know, the traditional 50-gallon, or excuse me, 53-gallon barrel. 30-gallon um, barrel is popular as well um, for distillers. Once we have a stack of joined and planed staves. We got one right here. We've got one right here. Demonstration. Beautiful. Um, then we will start to raise the barrel and goes into some construction rings. And we will take the different size staves uh, and start putting them in to fit them tightly. And there's a certain number of staves that go into each barrel size. And that, again, is the hands-on process that you just keep putting different staves in until you get that really tight structure. Because what you're looking for is the, is the joining together and the tightness. You know, you want to obviously have a barrel that is leak-proof. And so we will, once we have the number in that fit, it looks good. We'll start to raise it. Um, we apply heat and moisture so that we can actually start to bend it. And that's how you get that rounded shape to the wood, that slow process of bringing the barrel uh, together and adding, adding the hoops as it comes up. And after you've got it fully raised, then it gets set aside until we have a collection and we will toast it or char it 
to our client specifications. We do not use any chemicals in that. It's all natural process wood chips. It's that's that's the fun part. It's all fun, but the firing is is the fun part. Yeah, I'm really interested in the process of I guess charring a barrel uh, because there's actually just like there's different grades of wood, just like there's different grades of you know any number of inputs in the spirits process. There's also different levels of char. Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm, certainly. So there are typically four levels of char. It can go up to five. Um, I've been talking with a distiller who's interested in what I'm calling the extreme char. Traditionally, there are four levels of char, um, and they literally are just called char one, two, three, and four, where Char one is the barrel is caught on fire. And this, this is the difference between toasting and charring. Toasting is a slow heat and the barrel is never a flame. Uh, it's just warming the wood um, for a period of time. Uh, again, depending on, on the flavor profiles that you're looking for and the weight of the toast. An actual char, the barrel is a flame. And the length of the flame determines the length of the char level. So char one, it's flamed and doused at a certain time to just give it enough of, of a charcoal to provide some of the flavor. Char four is the most heavy char, and that's oftentimes known as the alligator char because it does look like an alligator skin. And the barrel is flamed for a lot longer period of time. What charring does for the barrel, and this is why it's important for the craft spirits industry and why your wine industry would not want this, is it actually, because you are flaming the barrel, it's opening up access to the wood mm -hmm. in different ways, as well as, um, especially with the heavy char for caramelizing some of the um, sugar contents in the wood and bringing out heavy smokiness. So it, depending on the char level, depends on what the distiller wants in the spirits, their flavor profile, how long they're going to age it in that barrel as well. And so this is where we work very closely with the distillers to try and decide uh, what's best. And, and they have a good knowledge as well. Uh, and, and a lot want to experiment, you know, between different chars, and as I said, the, I love the barbecue char, yeah. uh, you know, but, but that doesn't mean it necessarily comes with barbecue flavor. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there's, there's always the tendency to want to kind of crank it to 11. Oh, we have four chars. Let's make a fifth char. Like, you know, so I'd be interested to see how that turns out. Talking about some of the effects that charring has on a barrel. So a lot of our listeners out there are home bartenders. They're mm -hmm. listening in, trying to just learn more about spirit so that they know the the what and the wherefore. And and one of the things that I think should be said, but hasn't been yet, is that brown spirits almost exclusively are brown unless unless coloring is added. If there's no added coloring, they're brown because they've sat in a barrel and and that char has affected the color. And then you also talked about the caramelization process. And, and that's something that you can really pick out in an American bourbon, for example, where, you know, you get these really heavily toasted barrels or heavily charred barrels and you, you put the whiskey in there and you really get those caramel notes in a lot of those bourbons. And then on the physical side of things, one of the things that I wanted to, to point out, maybe we can talk a little bit about how the barrel functions during the aging process. One of the things that I wanted to point out is, you know, you talked about um, the charring kind of creating access to the wood for the, for the spirit in aging. And part of that is a, is a surface area thing. If you have a nice flat kind of, um, you know, homogenous surface, that's a lot smaller surface area than you would have if it, the surface was highly dimpled. And you're talking about that alligator char that makes it really rough and kind of bumpy on the inside. So not only are you taking that initial uncharred layer of wood and kind of roughing it up, but you're also creating these little microscopic holes and opening up access to pores that are deeper in the stave than you would have if it was uncharred. Mm -hmm. All that, is that all correct? That is all correct. And, uh, but you, what you're also touching on when you're talking about liquid to surface ratio is the size of the barrel plays into this as well. So if you are working with a smaller barrel, say 10 gallon, 15 gallon, 
your spirit has a has more contact. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, like so, this this was kind of like a, a like a blow my mind moment when I first encountered this concept, and the way that I kind of had to talk myself through it was, imagine if the ocean floor was a bear. Like imagine if the ocean sat <laughs> in a container, right? The, and the ocean floor or whatever this container was, was imparting flavor to the ocean. The, the water molecules that are floating around, the liquid molecules that are floating around in the middle aren't in contact with anything that would give it flavor. So like if you think about massive liquid in a massive tank, only a, only the stuff that is touching that is going to get that flavor. And the rest of the huge volume of that tank is going to be not touching anything that imparts flavor. So logically then, the smaller the container, the more of the liquid is going to be in contact with the flavor imparting surface. Is that the general logic for people who don't understand surface ratio (laughs) equations? That's a a great analogy. And actually, a little side note, when when you were talking about the ocean rocking and moving, um, because of course, a lot of spirits, you know, back in the early days were carried over on ships. And so they got that rolling motion. And so they, you know, the liquid inside those barrels was turning, even if the barrel wasn't, uh, and rocking and rolling to, to help shape that. And so that is a, a consideration that, you know, distillers, when they, when they put the barrels on the rack is, do they just leave it one position? Do they turn it? The size of the barrel, um, the, it, there are so many different factors. And this is what I love about the craft spirits world, because Every little piece of it can change the product just a little. Yep. And so when you're talking about, as you were saying, using a small barrel, more exposure to the wood, which sometimes then uh, it's going to impart those flavors a lot faster, you can get your product out to market a lot faster. But on the other hand, that's a spirit that hasn't been aged as long. And so spirits aging longer in a barrel also plays to a flavor profile. So there's, there's room for both, uh, in the market space and, and for people who are interested in tasting, it's, it's for me, a fun experiment to go and, you know, and talking with the distillers, well, how long have you aged your spirit in the barrel? What size barrels have you been using? And then recognizing, starting to determine the flavor profiles that come with that, um, both for the length that it's been aged as well as, as the size of the barrel. So usually the 53 gallon barrels, the big ones, spirits are put in and that's going to sit on the rack for a long period of time. Right. Yeah. So there's, (laughs) there's definitely different schools of thought and, you know, I've been in situations where certain distillers that, that I've met have looked down at the idea of using a smaller barrel because it's perceived as having like a, you know, trying to um, speed up a process that shouldn't be sped up mechanically. Uh, So there's that, that's one take. Uh, Another take is, you know, let's take me, for example, I'm not a distiller. I enjoy cocktails. I enjoy little experiments. And I have one of those little tiny, like, I don't know, like one gallon Mm -hmm. or like, you know, 1.75 liter uh, barrels that kind of sits in a little stand on a shelf at my house. And it's just perfect. You know, I can put different spirits in there and see what it does to it. And for me, not having to wait years and years to to taste my experiments is is really nice. So I think those little kits uh, that are available in a bunch of different places are a great way for our listeners who are trying to, you know, trying to get hands on at home to kind of explore the different effects of putting something that might be unaged into a charred barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I want to say, and maybe you can speak a little bit about this, is that I have a room that is attached to my apartment. And this is certainly not a compliment to my apartment or my landlord or anything like that, but it's unheated. It's, I'm, you know, I, we call it my office, but it really just kind of got slapped onto the end of the apartment. And so 
the room feels like whatever it feels like outside. And so in the winter, it's very cold. In the summer, it's super hot. And that's where I've decided to keep my barrel. And uh, this is also something that distillers will kind of play around with in terms of temperature and humidity. So I was wondering if you could also jump into the effect that those two kind of climatic things will have on the aging of a spirit in a barrel. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And it's actually an important part. It's what we call the breathing of the barrel. And you're right. Different distilleries will age their their barrels in different ways in different environments, um, but always paying attention to humidity levels, to how hot, how cold it gets, somewhat consistency as it applies to their particular recipe and their end product. Uh, others will play around. I really, for me, it comes back to regional craft spirits. Uh, you know, and here in the state of Maryland, we have a tradition of rye history, long heritage, uh, excuse me, of rye whiskey. And we made barrels to store the rye whiskey. We're a humid climate. We get cold in the winters. Uh, and how that played into the flavor profiles, very different climates, other places in the United States. Uh, so I think that's what contributes to the local aspect of craft spirits. It's something that if you are uh, a home distiller, uh, to pay attention to yourself. Um, the other thing that you have to consider is if it gets too dry, too low of humidity, uh, the bar barrel itself will start to shrink a little bit mm -hmm. and it could potentially leak on you. Yep. So that's something to, to think about as well. So you might actually start developing your own coopering skills. Yeah, that's happening to me right now. My, <laughs> my barrel's got like a little slow leak on it and uh, it's been, hasn't been too humid. So it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, that's all really interesting. And one of the points that I want to pull out of that is something about terroir. And mm -hmm. I just did a terroir episode, so it's on my mind and one of the things that I, I talk about in that episode is that it's a little bit hard to attribute terroir to a spirit because so much processing occurs after the initial fermentation or, you know, after the harvesting of the base grain or fruit. And that doesn't happen as much with wine. So it's easier to, to pull out terroir with wine. But one of the kind of terroir-ish things that I'm drawing from what you're saying is that, yeah, there's a tradition that developed in these different regions. And of course, the climate of Maryland is different than the climate of Kentucky, is different than the climate of other rye producing states like Pennsylvania. And so these traditions, when paired with kind of terroir-like things, like climate, kind of produce something that's at least approaching terroir. And, and I really like um, when you can get in touch with those aspects of it, especially when that aspect for you, for people here in the mid-Atlantic is local, it is home, it's homegrown. So it, it's, I still would make the argument that with things like barrel aging, you can still ascertain some semblance of terroir and spirits. Well, and there actually is terroir when it comes to wood. Uh, we just are still developing our research on it. <clears throat> Uh, the French have done an amazing job uh, of doing the research on the French oak and to the point where the wood down to the forest, they can attribute certain flavor profiles to it. And that's not just for the wine industry. It's also for their spirits industry. It's only been in the past 25 years that it, here in the U.S., we've started to look at that data as well. And so there is a lot of research that's come out of Missouri, Minnesota, other places that look at white oak and the terroir. And it's, it's not just climate, but it's the quality of the soil, how long it grows, you know, how frequently the growth seasons are. We are in the process, Free State Cooperage is working with um, uh, folks here in the region uh, at some of our universities, the Extension Service, to start to collect that data, to start to do some research, because I do believe it's important. Uh, you, we are known in this area for rye whiskey. And as you were saying, the grain grown in this area plays a part of it. 
um, the wood that comes from this area plays a part of it. Right now, I have anecdotal, you know, evidence uh, that that's part of what contributes, you know, to the spiciness, not just that coming from the grain. Um, well, what are the mineralities in our soil? You know, obviously, as you just mentioned, our humid climates, our dry winters all play a part in all of this. And so it's, it's something that is actually relevant, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, and I think it will help us, you know, as, as the craft spirits industry really starts to look at our own oak uh, and, and really starts to build that data, um, it's going to give us some really interesting uh, aspects that we'll be able to tailor to our, our clients. For sure. What are your thoughts on Hungarian oak? I like it. <laughs> no, I've actually never used Hungarian oak. So, and there's also Mongolian oak out oh, there goodness. now. And yeah. So oh, no. I, you know, this is, and I get asked all the time, are you going to import wood? And I'm not, you know, I, I am serving our local clients, local customers. You know, I am all about helping our local industries grow. Mm -hmm. And that's why I source my wood from the region. Uh, so that, you know, you can have that 100% Virginia made, 100% Maryland made, 100% Mm -hmm. West Virginia made product. Um, I, I value that craftsmanship. And so, um, while I may drink wines that are made in French oak or Hungarian oak, um, my preference is always American oak. Yeah. I was uh, kind of thrown for a loop when I was reading a wine label a couple of years ago and I saw Hungarian oak because that was just not part of the wine canon when I was learning about it. And then now Mongolian oak. So uh, hopefully as more research on the topic develops, we'll also be able to apply that across some of these less, at least currently less common types so that we can not only be able to explain one case study being French oak, that maybe we can apply some of these concepts across the board. So any of you wood nerds or wine nerds out there should keep an eye on the research and uh, definitely hit us up at Modern Barcart if you see anything that might be relevant to this. But one question I did want to ask before we jump into some lightning round questions here is the process of barrel aging cocktails. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's been a little bit more common in bars, certainly, especially here in DC, almost all of the nicer cocktail bars, you'll see some sort of barrel aged Manhattan or Negroni Mm -hmm. or something like that. To me, barrel aging a cocktail seems different than barrel aging a spirit. So is there any differences that that you're aware of that uh, we might be able to identify for the listeners? Well, it's all going to be enhancing the flavor. So barrel aging a straight whiskey is what's helping to bring it to the end product. Whereas you're already with a cocktail, you already have that product. You're just enhancing the flavors and, and mellowing out maybe some of the sharp edges, depending on, on the, um, the spirits that you are putting into the cocktail. It's another way to experience and enhance complex flavors. Mm -hmm. So one thing to kind of point out here might be that if you have a cocktail that is like, think about it this way, whiskey's already aged. So the question is like, if I'm barrel aging a Manhattan, why did I take something that somebody's already aged for several years and then put some vermouth in it and some bitters and then stick it in a barrel again? Like, did it need that? Um, this is where sometimes I get skeptical of barrel aged cocktails. It's like, well, did it need it? And why am I now paying like several extra dollars for this? I think a good kind of middle ground would be barrel aging things with unaged spirits. So barrel aging like Negroni or something with gin, that's certainly going to impart a characteristic that is not already in kind of the classic Negroni flavor profile. Uh, doing things with Blanco tequila, where if you're making sort of like a, I don't know, any sort of margarita style cocktail, you might even be able to age that and give it the character of an Añejo tequila when you're really just put inputting silver or Blanco tequila. So these are the places where I think that barrel aging really does add value. 
Uh, personally, I am skeptical of the barrel aged cocktails that contain already aged spirits because my question is like, why'd you do it? Like, what what did it need? And is it worth the money that I'm now going to pay for it? So I guess that's my well, two cents on this subject. Well, as a fan of barrel aged cocktails, I will advocate for it. And I love Manhattan. So uh, I don't know when you say need, do you, do you need to barrel age a gin? Do you need to barrel age a tequila? We do it because we're artisans, because we want to find a different way of expressing the flavors that are in the cocktails. Again, it's, it's the comparison. If you drink just a, a Manhattan that has not been aged in a barrel, Manhattan that has using the same ingredients, you can't change up <laughs> your whiskeys on it. It's a mellow, more mellow. It takes out the sharpness and why that might be attractive is for people who not sure they really like whiskey, it is it's a strong flavor. And if, you, if you're not used to it, having that barrel-aged cocktail where it's rounding out some of the sharpness may be a way for individuals to gain exposure to a spirit that may, they may be hesitant to try any other way. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Making things more accessible is always something that uh, that we like here. And you also make another good point. Like, well, why why do art? Why barrel age a cocktail? Why do people do art? You know, you know, because because they're artists, because they're artisans, and because they're curious, right? I think curiosity plays a big part in it. So that is all really useful information. Hopefully, we're getting people passionate about wood and barrels and. Hopefully some of the terms that we've used here in this episode will allow folks when they take their next trip to the distillery to start asking questions about the nature of the aging process and the sourcing process as well. Um, you know, we're trying to create more informed consumers and contrary to what you might expect, distillers actually like people who kind of go in there and ask them these mm -hmm. questions. They're not, they're, they're not looked at as invasive because they're just looking, especially at the local level, they're looking to tell their story. So definitely folks ask your, ask your distiller about their barrels. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> they would be happy to chat with you about it. All right. So are you good for some lightning round questions? Bring it on. Beautiful. What's your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what is something you've been obsessed with more recently? Well, my favorite cocktail is the Manhattan and it always has been, and I'm still obsessed with it. Beautiful. Yeah. Some, some romances, uh, last, last a while. And what vermouth do you tend to like to use in your Manhattan? Oh, that's a really good question. It all depends on the whiskey that I'm using. I will only use American vermouth. Okay. Um, I, I really made a commitment a few years back to supporting our craft craftsmen. And I love that even in vermouth, you're getting the artisanal products. And so I just recently have been playing around with different ones uh, in the Manhattans uh, okay. to see which I like. Well, shout out to some, I mean, most of the big vermouths that we know are not American. So what yeah. are some of these American producers that we should know? I'm going to defer that question. They're all good that are being produced in America. I'm not going to single out anyone in particular at this point, gotcha. but yeah, but definitely go find them because there are some good ones that are coming out in the American market space. Beautiful. What is your favorite spirit then? I imagine you're probably a dark spirits person since you work in the, the <laughs> well, well, here's the thing. I love, I do, I love all spirits and, you know, I do have, even though I've got a favorite cocktail, I drink different cocktails during different seasons, but I am a rye whiskey girl. I love rye whiskey. I love the spiciness. I love the story that comes with it. I love the heritage of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Something I'm learning more and more about as we continue to pick up partners who produce rye whiskey. Mm-hmm. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in history, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink? Where would you go? What would you talk about? You know, this question is such a great question. And I actually, I was thinking about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many people I would love to chat with. And I thought, well, if I only had the one opportunity, who would it really be? And you know, I came back to, and I, he's prominent for so many different things, but it's George Washington. The reason why I would want to sit down with him is I want to have a conversation with him 
over a glass of whiskey. You know, he was the largest whiskey producer for a period. Mount Vernon cranked out 11,000 gallons of whiskey a year. And I love that they've reclaimed his recipe down there and they're still using it. But he's also the one that squelched the whiskey rebellion. Uh, yeah, that must have been kind of a, a torn decision. Yeah. And so I'd love to have that conversation with him. <laughs> I mean, I obviously understand, you know, the economies of the time. And I find it very interesting. To some extent, we still have the same issues. It's urban, rural, you know, yep. farmers, traditional farmers trying to make a living versus, you know, industrialized areas and taxation. And so, yeah, I'd love to have that conversation with him. Yeah, because obviously a lot of what happened back then set the tone for things that have happened, you know, cyclically since then. And and still to this day. Right. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Are there any books about cocktails, spirits, barrel making, distillation, anything that you'd like to recommend? (laughs) One of my favorite books is called 99 Drams of Whiskey by Kate Hopkins. I love it because she goes on a world tour and then it's her adventures, tasting whiskey, talking with people. It's, It's a great introduction if you're not that familiar with the different types of whiskeys around the world. Um, and it's, it's a fun read and it's, there's so many out there, you know, I I love history of cocktail books and all, but this, this book just touches on everything. The adventures, you know, great craft spirits and, and the history. Kind of a tour de force. It is. Yes. All right. Well, we will link to 99 Drams by Kate Hopkins in our show notes. So if anyone's interested, you can head on over to Amazon or some other purveyor and pick that up. If you could give any piece of advice to somebody who's just starting out their journey as a home bartender or a spirits or barrel enthusiast, perhaps, uh, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Don't be intimidated. You know, there are, you know, craft spirits are taking off in the U.S. And if you are not familiar with the spectrum that's out there, it can be a little overwhelming if you really think about, like you were saying, you're getting used to, you know, you're getting better acquainted with the rye whiskey uh, in the area. There's bourbons, there's, you know, Tennessee whiskeys. And and we're just talking whiskeys. You've got all the gins, you've got the rums, and it's fun. And vodkas too, don't mean to leave out vodka. And and it's it's fun, Um, but don't be intimidated. And, you know, I, there was a period where, this many, many moons ago, where I was like, ooh, whiskey, it's too strong. I don't like it. It burns, you know, all, all of the stuff you hear from somebody that's trying it for the first time. And then it was a friend of mine who, over a camping trip, introduced me to Scotch whiskey and said, try this with a toasted marshmallow chaser. And it was great. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And that's what set me on my quest. Uh, And, you know, I started with Scotch whiskeys and then moved um, to bourbons and moved to rye. There's so many different styles out there. Just try and experiment and you'll find what you like. Yeah. The buffet should be exciting, not intimidating. Exactly. Very cool. Alice, is there any way that folks can get in touch with you if they want to give you just a say little shout out, say hi, or if they want to learn more about Free State Cooperage? Absolutely. So we are on the website at www.freestatecooperage.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter, Free State Cooperage. And we would love to hear from you. We will eventually, we're not there yet, but we will be offering tours of our facility. So you can come out to Deep Creek Lake, see barrels being flamed, have a taste of whiskey in our tasting room. So keep an eye out for announcements when that opens. But we are happy to answer any questions anybody might have about barrels, about craft spirits, about the region. Well, let me know when those tours are up and running and we'll maybe do a part two and come and see your facility. And that would be fun. Then we will show you how barrels are made, not just talk about it. Yes. Sounds great. Well, thanks for thanks again for joining us and we will talk soon. Thank you. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes 
on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, barrel expertise by Alice Blaine Allard, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.